Our text this morning is verse 13, and we're looking up what is a Christian? How do you know that you are a Christian? And uh, we've been looking to bring some clarity about what that is and what it means, uh, because we know that even those who would sometimes call themselves Christians are confused about what it means to be a true follower of the Lord Jesus. Many who say that they are Christians, but they don't have that real personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we've been looking at these questions. Am I really a Christian? And we saw that a real Christian is a person who has been born again, that God has taken hold of them and made them new and given them life in Christ. God has enabled them to turn and repent of their sin and to trust in Jesus Christ alone, his finished work upon the cross, so that they can be forgiven and made right with him. And a, a real Christian will show the fruit of that, the fruit of new life, and that will be seen in their faith in the Lord Jesus, their love for God, and also their love for other believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ, our spiritual family. And then we ask the question, do I believe in Jesus? Being a true Christian is to believe in Jesus as revealed in the Bible, as revealed in God's Word, who He is, what He has done, His person and His work. Because if everything depends on Jesus and believing in him, if that's the basis of being saved, enduring in this world, having hope of heaven, then I need to be absolutely sure about who it is that I am trusting, the Son of God and the only Savior. And then last time we looked, how can I know that I'm a Christian? The Bible says that we should know, that we can know and should know that we are believers. That's why John says in verse 13, that you may know. And we saw how that John in his letter highlighted certain tests that we can apply to ourselves to see if we're the Lord's. Like, do we love God? What do I believe concerning the Lord Jesus? Do I keep God's commandments? Are they grievous to me? Do I love my brothers and sisters? Am I quick to forgive? And however faint... Answers to these point us to see whether we really possess eternal life or not. And this morning we're going to draw it together by asking that question, how can I be sure? Building on what we were looking at last week. And the great theme of the New Testament is, do I have eternal life? Sometimes we can overlook this and we focus only on forgiveness. Now, it's wonderful, isn't it, to know if you're a believer this morning that your sins are forgiven, that we've been saved from punishment and condemnation. It's wonderful. It's also essential that we want to please the Lord and live for his glory. But sometimes we can forget that one of the most incredible things that is offered to us in the New Testament is being united with Christ and the blessings of eternal life. Now, why did John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write his gospel and then write these letters? Why did the early church not just preach the message of forgiveness and leave it at that? Well, John tells us. And in fact, in his gospel, he makes it very, very clear. He says, and truly, this is John 20, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. 
And he wasn't alone. You read through the other Gospels, the other Gospel writers, it was the same for them. They didn't just write to put on record the life of Jesus, but to clarify that he's the Savior, that he's the Son of God, that he's the promised Messiah, that he is the one who has come to bring true life to men and women like you and me. Because he is life. He said that himself. Jesus said about why you come in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And you read on through the New Testament, you think of Acts and all of the works of the Spirit of God through the early church and the Lord Jesus ascends to heaven and the the Holy Spirit comes down on the early church and it's the, the final proof that he is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's come. And then the fulfillment of the promise of the Holy Spirit. And through his work, we receive eternal life. And throughout the book of Acts, what did those first preachers say? We heard him. We saw him. We are witnesses of him. We we saw his crucifixion and his burial. We saw the, the stone sealed on the grave. But then we saw him risen. We saw the empty grave. We saw him ascend. And we received the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Apostle Paul, though not one of the original disciples, was given to see the risen Lord in order that he might bear witness to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the one who gives abundant life to sinners like you and me. You read on through the New Testament, think of all the the New Testament letters. They were written to people who had already believed the gospel, to believers together in churches. They weren't open letters to the world but they were particular letters to groups of Christians or individual Christian believers, and they were written because all believers lived and continue to live in a difficult world. And they had their issues. You read that in the letters. They had their problems. They had their fallouts. They were tempted at times to doubt, and sometimes they were defeated and caused to stumble by the enemy. They fell into temptation. They had many trials and troubles. At times it seemed as though everything was going wrong. And these letters were written to strengthen, to encourage, to challenge, to set things in order so that they could go on with the Lord. And so throughout the the heart of the message that we find is that everything that we need is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they have to realize that it is His life that they need and that's what we need to realize too and that without him they we can do nothing that's the great theme Jesus Christ the son of God came into the world to give us life and nothing compares to this so we must never think that the the New Testament is some high teaching that somehow we have to to work out and somehow put into action it's also not a call for us to try and reach a higher plane to our own endeavors no it is a proclamation it is stunning news that God in his mercy and grace is giving eternal life to dead sinners The New Testament is written to declare and to demonstrate this reality. And it's not vague. And it's not some set of rules to follow. A real person, the Lord Jesus that we remember, you know, particularly is coming, don't we, at this time of year. A real person has appeared in this world who is the bearer of this eternal life that God is giving to men and women like you and me. So if there is something that we need to be certain of, surely it's that we know him. 
that we are right with him. That's John's heart. That's what he wants us to know because it is a tragedy that someone should miss that or be uncertain of that. That someone who longs to be the Lord's goes on wrapped with anxiety and searching and hoping but thinking, well, you can't really know. You can't really be sure. John says, no, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So let's ask the question, why do people struggle with this when the Bible is so clear? You know, last time we considered maybe some of the more, we would call them theological reasons, and some of the objections before showing that the New Testament teaching is that the believer should have that certainty in Christ. But there are those who have a right view of faith, the truth of the Scriptures, who who desire to love and follow the Lord, and yet they still struggle in this area. And it's a real struggle, and perhaps they've been unsettled by unhelpful trends and teaching that is at large. But let's consider some of the difficulties. You know, some struggle with this whole matter of being sure and with assurance because they associate assurance only with experience. And that is a real problem for many. The idea that my assurance is totally connected to how I feel rather than what the truth of the Bible says. And often when there are you know, dramatic conversions or incredible divine interventions and they are made the norm, those who see their experience as ordinary can feel inadequate. And it's not a surprise because people are always drawn to the spectacular. It's one of the results of the fall. We are quick to be dissatisfied and discontent and we want something sensational to grab our attention. We're always looking for something. But we're never satisfied. And that can roll over and it can impact our Christian experience. We can fall into the trap of thinking that only the sensational is worthwhile. That only the sensational is worth attention. And so you have sensational stories and experiences and exceptional cases. And they're always used to maximize interest and, dare we say at times, push sales. And we read and we marvel and we think, well, well, how incredible. And we think, well, if I had an experience like that, well, then I'd be sure. Or it could make us feel inadequate when we see that. And we think, well, well, I don't know anything of these things. And then you get only testimonies of incredible conversions are seen as valuable and seen as worth listening to because who wants to hear about, you know, normal sinners being saved? And so in this issue of assurance, we can think that unless something comes to us that is extraordinary, we can never really know. And so we can miss what the Lord has for us because we're looking for something spectacular, something sensational to happen. Friends, we really need to get back to what the Bible says. Because the New Testament never emphasizes the circumstances in which this life in Christ is given to us. Because every believer is a miracle of sovereign grace. Every believer. And it's God's work from beginning to end. But what the New Testament does emphasize is whether you have this life or not. That's the key question. 
You know, one preacher often comforted those struggling by reminding them that the Bible does not say whoever feels shall be saved. Whoever believes shall be saved. And there are some who say that they accept the truth, they accept the teaching, but they've not felt anything. And the New Testament doesn't make some extraordinary feeling a requirement. It says, do you believe in Jesus? It says, are you prepared to put all your hope in Jesus Christ. It says, are you willing to say, I live by this no matter what, not by feeling, but by believing and taking him at his word, by trusting him alone. Now, one old preacher gave the following example. He said, two men may arrive at the end of the journey with their clothes wet through. But if you inquired as to how it happened to these two men, you might find that it happened in a different way in each case. So one man might say that he set out on his journey and the sun was shining brilliantly. He didn't bother to bring an umbrella or a waterproof as there was no suggestion that it was going to rain. But halfway along the road, suddenly the clouds gathered and just a massive downpour took place. And in a moment, he was soaked through. The other man's story is a very different one. You see, there was a kind of drizzle all the way through his journey. So he couldn't tell you exactly when he got wet. The first man could, but the second couldn't. But what matters is not how the two men got wet, but the fact that they're both wet all the way through. Whether it happens suddenly or gradually is irrelevant. It is God's work when it comes to salvation. And so the vital question is not whether I can point to some vital, extraordinary experience in my life which has consequently given me assurance. The question is, as I face myself with what the Scriptures say, what the test that John brings out to me in this epistle says, do I know I have life? As I look at the test the Scriptures bring about, about believing in Jesus, about loving God, about loving my brothers and sisters, can I say yes to those things? Friend, you know, if you're here this morning and you've constantly felt inadequate or discouraged or downbeat because you don't have some extraordinary feeling, please be free from that bondage by gazing on the glorious sufficiency and promise of Jesus Christ. You look to him it's not about dramatic, thrilling experiences. It is the fact that we have life or not. And that life is in Jesus Christ. It is about whether we have been made alive by the grace of God. And if you're a believer this morning, you are a miracle of grace. And praise God, if you came from extraordinary background and situation and God plucked you out of that, amen. Praise the Lord. But if it was more gradual and more ordinary, as some would say, we praise the Lord for that too. The key thing is whether you have life or not. Another difficulty that some have is to have assurance. They believe that we've got to be sinless, this idea of sinless perfectionism. And I will say to you, it's more common in this part of the world than you might realize. And they argue that to know that you have eternal life to be a believer, you ought to have no sin or failure in your life. And if you do, then it's a failing on your part. 
And John has, has dealt with this earlier in the letter. Think of 1 John 1 verses 8 to 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See that truth throughout the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't say that we've got to be sinless and perfect before we can know that we have eternal life. In fact, the New Testament clearly teaches that for the believer, there's going to be an ongoing struggle and battle with sin in our lives. Now, we've got to battle it. We've got to fight that fight, as it were. But that's just the reality. And God gives us what we need to do that. And it's an evidence of life that we know the battle exists. You know, Galatians 5, 17, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now, of course, there's always the danger that someone then argues, well, I can sin as much as I like. Well, that's not what is being said. The New Testament speaks of the fact that when we're made alive in Christ, when we are born again, when we receive new life, we're given a new nature. A new man comes into us, and so there's a, a conflict between the new and the old, the spirit and the flesh. Now, to be aware of that, even though we sin and we stumble, to be aware of the fact that there is a struggle between these two, these people are given proof positive that they have life. You know, there's no spiritual struggle in the life of the unbeliever. There may be from time to time a, a sense of struggle and shame if they don't live up to their own self-imposed standards, but this is different. This is the conflict between light and darkness within. In the believer, there is a spiritual struggle between the new life that we have in Christ and the sinful flesh. And we battle that every day. And so, friend, don't allow the enemy to discourage you because there are times when you fall into sin on occasion or because you have a holy dissatisfaction with your spiritual state. If there is evidence of this struggle, this spiritual struggle, then according to the teaching of the New Testament, that in itself is proof that you have life and that you've been awakened. You know, sometimes we read, don't we, of those great men and women of God who've gone before us who are strong in the truth. But they knew their own sin and failing too, and yet we read them and you think, well, they live such outstanding lives. And we read of them and we look at ourselves and we say, well, how can we possibly compare to that? How can we say that, that we have eternal life when we're in such a poor condition in comparison and we, we feel as though we've never really lived for the Lord? But as one preacher says, if you haven't felt like that, there's something wrong with you. For I would regard that as the normal reaction of any Christian. You place yourself in contrast and you, you wonder how you can have eternal life seeing this difference between that great man and woman of God or, and you. And the enemy comes sweeping in and rather than these things being an encouragement to pursue the Lord and to go on, they become a stick to beat us with. And the enemy wants to rob you of your joy. He used to batter us and cause us to doubt whether we have life at all. And what do we do when we feel like that? We've got to go back to the truth of the scripture. 
and remember that we are born again into this Christian life, that, you know, we are only babes as it were, and we are to develop and we are to grow, and some grow quicker than others. Some are more determined than others to grow. But you know, we can thank God that a little life is still life. And so we turn back to the truth of the Scriptures, the teaching of the New Testament. As one explains, the baby that was born an hour ago is as much alive as I am. The fact that he is a baby does not mean that he is not alive. He's not full grown. He's not developed. He cannot think and reason. He cannot speak and express himself, but he has life. The babe is as much alive as the old man, and that is the New Testament teaching. So don't let the devil discourage you and rob you in that way. If you are alive at all, you have life. You know, some of the most beautiful words in the Scriptures are those where our Savior, the Lord Jesus, quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Maybe some of you can think instantly of what those words are. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. You know, if you look at a bruised reed, it looks so limp and so lifeless. Or you think on the smoking flax, and we wonder if there's any fire there at all. But there is fire. There is something because it's smoking. And even that, he will not quench. He will not allow to be extinguished. Rather, he will fan it until it becomes a flame. And though you may have come this morning and you might feel weary, and you might feel as though you've just got little life, you hold on to the fact that you have life and thank God for it and pray that he would increase it in you. Life doesn't just show itself in extraordinary feeling experience. Life is as much evident in doing the most common tasks in life. You know, it is helpful to remind ourselves of that. And as we consider those tests, do I believe in Jesus? Do I love God? Do I love the brethren? Even though they may just be a flicker, there is life. And so I don't need to be thrown around by feelings. I need to be anchored in the word. That is the key thing. And a dead man isn't interested or concerned about any of that. You know, if you're concerned over whether you have eternal life or not, and it's your greatest desire to know that you do have life, then that is a wonderful thing because it shows God's work in you. Dead men are not interested in these things until God begins to work. You know, if you feel that you're empty and you're poor and you're wretched, if you hate the way that you still stumble into sin, if you're dismayed at the way that you so often do those things which you wish you did not do, then these are scriptural indicators that God is at work in you and that you have life. No one who does not have the life of God experiences those things. It's only when God is at work that these concerns, these desires are evident. And then as we finish, why should we make sure of this? Why should we want to know? Why should we make sure? Well, friends, if only we truly appreciated the value of eternal life. If only we really appreciated what it was, what it is that God is giving to us in his son. Or oh, we would pursue these things like nothing else.
You see, this life that we're given is the very life of Christ. The life you see in him is the life that he offers. It is his own life. And as we are united with him, we must spiritually partake of him and believe in him, appropriate him, know him for ourselves. John 6, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to are spirit and they are life. In other words, this is the life of God himself that is given to us. That is an incredible thing this morning. If you're a believer, you have been given this life. It's a wonderful thought. And this life is eternal. And eternal life speaks of a quality of life, but it also speaks of duration. It is not temporary life. Some preach temporary life, and I don't understand that because I don't see that in the Scriptures. We're given eternal life. Not a hundred years life or a thousand years life, or it would be called that. It is eternal life, everlasting, never-ending. And it means that once this life has been given by God, there is none who can take it away. His action is irreversible. If God gives me his life, and if his life enters into my life, if I am born again of that divine work, if I am a partaker of that divine nature then that action cannot be reversed. God has intervened. You know, what does our Savior say of his sheep in John 10, 29? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You know, is there anything more glorious than that? To know this morning that you are helped if you're a believer, you are held, and there is none that can snatch you from the hand of God. If you're a believer this morning, you have been given eternal life. You have it now, and it is exactly that eternal. It will be forever in the glory to come. Romans 8, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whatever may happen in this life, whatever may happen in this world, and there is a lot happening in this world, there is this grand security for the believer because God himself is the guarantor. And we may be tried, we may be tested, we may feel ourselves shaking, and to be honest, we may feel as though we're almost going under. But God guarantees our deliverance. His word, his promises, his honor are at stake. And this is a life which will go on for all eternity and we begin to taste it and know it now we begin this great feast that will sustain us throughout the ages now. I know that life now, the same life that will endure for eternity, the life that will enable me to dwell in the presence of God, to see my Savior, Jesus Christ. And if I have this life, one day I shall see him and I shall see him in all his glory. And I shall stand in his presence. And worship him. 
And only those who have this life and who have his nature, who share his life, who have been born again, will go on to that, to dwell forever in the presence of God. And those who have it will see the Savior because they shall be made like him. And they will spend their eternity in glory with him, worshiping, admiring, and rejoicing in his presence. Friend, we need to be certain of these things. Would you not like to be sure that you are destined for this? Would you not like to begin to enjoy this life even now? Because that is what is there for sinners like you and I if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we are the Lord's, we can know it because all our confidence is in him and we trust him. Not ourselves, we trust him. And you know, to live like that, to live with that reality helps us day by day because if I know I have this life, if I know that God is working in me, then I'm to follow that principle that Paul speaks of in Philippians 2. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Every day, God is molding me. He is sanctifying me, changing me. He is destined me for glory. And having destined me for glory, he will fit me for glory. And what assurance that the work that he has begun, he will complete. And I know that if I have eternal life, I shall one day stand blameless and faultless in his presence. And so as I meet temptation, as I face sin, I realize that I'm not facing that myself in terms of my own resources or my own ability. And so I don't need to feel helpless. I run to him and I look to his strength. And if we have eternal life, if we know we have it, we know that God's work in our souls will be carried on until that ultimate perfection and glory as it says in Romans 8, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. It is not in doubt. It's all of grace. And how are we then to live? 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We want to live for his glory. The one who has given so much to us, everything to us, we want to give everything for him. Friends, I pray that you would know this morning that you are in Christ, that you have a sure future and that you are looking eagerly to that day when we will know in glorious fullness what we now know, but in part, never to doubt anymore, only to rejoice in our God and in our Saviour. Amen.